And welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories told by legendary character actor Stephen Tobolowski about life, love, and the entertainment industry. My name is David Chen, host of the Slash Filmcast, and I'm joined as always by my illustrious guest, Stephen Tobolowski. <laughs> Stephen, how I'm are you doing today? <laughs> I, I feel so special being illustrious this week. Also, I should say, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I should not say you are a guest. Obviously, you are the star of the, the Tobolowski Files. Hey, I'm so. used to being a guest star. I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm in that groove. True enough. True enough. Uh, well... Uh, first of all, before we begin, I just want to let people know they can find uh, all of the episodes of the Tobolowski Files at tobolowskifiles.com and also find uh, new links to subscribe uh, to this show specifically. So make sure you resubscribe to this show. We're no longer going to be in the Slash Filmcast feed. Uh, but uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of the show. Uh, Steven, you yes, were sir. filming a movie this week, is that correct? Well, actually, David, no. No, that you have to be very careful of the words you use with an actor. I, I was not filming. I was working on the film Buried, but that movie's already been shot. And what I did was ADR, which was I added a voice to the film. It, it's a Ryan Reynolds film, and he's in a very dangerous, difficult situation, but he happens to have a cell phone, and I play one of the voices on the film. And it got me thinking of kind of the odd tasks and job requirements an actor has that maybe the audience doesn't know about. In this case, the movie was already finished. It was already done. In fact, a woman already did my part on the film. She already did all my lines. So what I had to do is re-record over the woman and be me and be myself, but... I had to be me in the same tempo as the woman so that Ryan's uh, overlaps and his lines would match what, the, what the, I had to match what the woman did. And it, it was kind of an odd skill, and it reminded me of other odd skills actors kind of have. Like in Deadwood, we had to act and ride horses at the same time, and sometimes you have to act and swim in lakes and things like that at the same time. And, and one one of the defining elements about being an actor is that you you always have to travel a lot. That is, if you work and you're lucky. And and for the people out there who don't know a lot about film, let me let me just say something. That where you shoot a movie often has absolutely nothing to do with the script, but it's more dependent on the budget of the film. And an example of this is like the movie Cold Mountain. Now, I think we all saw Cold Mountain, right? Uh, actually, I did not have a chance to see it while uh, I was in theaters. <laughs> well, you are, you are a lucky man. Yeah. But that movie takes place during uh, the Civil War. It's in the American South. But if I am correct, and I believe I am, it was shot in Romania. And that was because the movie company could get cheaper locations and could use a non-union crew that could basically survive on vodka fumes. Now, I was offered a movie once about oil rig workers in Houston, Texas. That made me very excited because I have relatives who live there until the producer told me that the movie would actually be shot in Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, 
uh, Time Traveler's Wife. Now, that was shot in Toronto, but for anyone who's seen it, it has nothing to do with the story. But, now, a lot of people don't know this, it's because the Canadian government gave the movie company money and tax breaks if we would shoot in some of the state-run insane asylums. And now, I personally shot in three of these places. And believe me, you really had to make sure you got off the elevator at the right floor on this picture. One night, we were, we were up all night shooting, and we were in the cafeteria, and one of the guards came in and told us to stay put. There may have been an escape. Now, when you work in exotic locales, the producers will call you up on the phone and brief you with any local problems you should be aware of for your safety. An example of this in Jamaica, we were told to cover our feet and ankles with insecticide to avoid cow ticks that infested the island. And in Thailand, we were warned that feet are profane and cursed, and you could never point a foot at anyone, and you can never point a shoe at anyone. You can never put your shoes on the pillow of your bed in the hotel, and if you were to leave your hotel with your shoes on your head, you could actually do jail time, and that's the truth. In Rio, we were warned about kidnappings. In Alabama, we were cautioned not to swim in the lake because, of course, that's where they dumped their medical waste. And my favorite of all, that uh, Houston film that was being shot in Cape Town, I was warned not to swim in any east-flowing rivers or streams because they had a small parasitic fish that could swim up my penis and live there forever. So I didn't do that movie. Now, when I got the wild hogs, we we're told we were going to be shooting in Santa Fe for a couple months. And this is very cool. This was exciting because the movie actually took place in the United States. And it was a relief that we weren't going to have to fly to Croatia. But the Disney people never called me with any warnings about the exotic nature of Santa Fe. So right now, as a public service, I'd like to give a brief advisory for anybody planning to spend any time in that area. Now, the first big surprise I had about Santa Fe is that you can't get there. Now, it's rumored to be one of the seventh largest tour destinations in America, but there are no flights because they don't have an airport, well, at least not a public one. The best you can do is fly into Albuquerque, rent a car, and drive for an hour. And when you get to Santa Fe proper, the first thing I noticed was that there was no oxygen, at least not in the amounts I was used to. I was wheezing as I dragged my bags from the van to the elevator, and I would have sold my soul for an aqualung. The, the city sits at about 7,000 feet above sea level. And one of the first locations that day we had for wild hogs was at a national park that was at 11,000 feet above sea level. And on the way up the mountain, I started to get dizzy and nauseous at the same time like when I was 15 years old and made out with a girl who was eating chili dogs. I'd been in town less than two hours, and I already had altitude sickness. But I was told not to worry. In the makeup trailer, they told us that everybody on the movie had altitude sickness. The assistant director warned me that besides the nausea I was experiencing, one of the symptoms I might have was the inability to sleep through the night. And he told me the only way to prevent this was I needed to drink water constantly. And privately, I was wondering if the inability to sleep through the night might be directly related to drinking all of that water constantly. 
I asked how serious it could get, the altitude sickness. And he said, well, most people acclimatize in a couple weeks. For some people, it could take years. But rarely, someone gets HASP. I'm going HASP. I hate diseases that come in initials. They're always bad. I, I go, HASP, what is HASP? And he goes, it is severe altitude sickness. It's marked by disorientation, bleeding in the brain, and death. Well, I suddenly felt like I was at the base camp of Everest. After a haircut and a costume fitting, they drove me back to the hotel. By this point, I was certain I had a rapidly developing case of HASP. So I decided to go out on this town before my brain started bleeding. I was cruising around, and and I was aware of something I had never known before. And that is that Santa Fe is the lesbian capital of the world. This is a city built and nurtured by homegrown and transplanted lesbians. And just like in music, when you pluck that fundamental tone and you get a string of sympathetic vibrations, I was now becoming aware of the societal effects of being in a culture completely dominated by lesbians. Now, the first thing you notice is that all of the bars have names that pay homage to the empowered female, like Sister Act or cowgirls, instead of the male-dominated bar names that for some reason frequently refer to playing cards like Jack of Clubs or Joker's Wild. When you have lots of lesbians in a culture, it also means you're going to have lots of Volkswagens, minivans. They're going to be all over the street. And for some reason, the lesbian prefers the boxy, slow-moving automobile. And they'll plaster these cars with lots and lots of bumper stickers. Now, these stickers can be spiritual-like, in Goddess We Trust, or musical-like Melissa Etheridge. And I like the nostalgic one, my old favorite, that says, Kiss My Grits. Now, if you want to make a small fortune in Santa Fe, all you have to do is get part interest in a unisex barbershop or buy into a clothing store that sells blue jeans and cowboy shirts with the sleeves ripped out. Just when I thought I knew everything about the sexual proclivities of Santa Fe, I'm driving down the street and I see a building with a sign saying, Human Rights Coalition, Gay, Bi, and Pansexual. I almost drove off the road. I mean, I stopped my car because I'm going, what is a pansexual? And I am no dummy. In fact, I consider myself a man in the world. After all, I was in the delivery room with my wife when she had a cesarean. And believe me, I thought I had seen it all. I went to a liberal arts college, and I still didn't know what a pansexual was. Now, I knew what a pan was. I knew a pan was either something I used in the kitchen to heat sausages or it was the Greek prefix pan, meaning everything, universal, like pantheist, panorama, pandemic. And I mean, my mind was reeling. How much sex were these people having here? For me, there wasn't enough oxygen to climb up a stairway, let alone search for other pansexuals to have pan sex with. And they clearly did not want to be lumped in with bisexuals, who by definition will sleep with anything that moves. Pansexuals definitely considered themselves to be different. They had their own sign. They had their own human rights center. So I try to understand, what are the needs of a pansexual? What are they in search of? And then my thoughts went back to grilling those sausages in the kitchen. And maybe a pansexual was just that, 
someone who had the desire to have sex with pots and pans and other kitchen appliances. But I was wrong. No. Now, this is what I really, really found out for the pan curious out there. And if my research is wrong, please write me, email me, because I have an inquiring mind I want to know. It was explained to me that if you believe in past life, like lots and lots of people in Santa Fe do, these past people might have different sexual orientations than you do. For example, I am a white middle-aged man, but in one of my dream states, I could have inside of me the spirit of a black lesbian stripper from the 1930s. And if I were then to have sex with my wife, it could be the stripper that's really having sex with her and not me, and my wife would be having a lesbian affair behind my back. It's all very disgusting, very complicated, which is why they have to have their own human rights center. The bottom line, I am not secure enough to be a pansexual. If you're in Santa Fe for any length of time, you will become keenly aware that the entire city has dedicated itself to Native American culture. And the practical result of this is that every restaurant, every hotel, spa, movie theater, gym, every place you go, you will be sitting on chairs made of antler horns or logs. It's very uncomfortable. You'll have to go into stores that are made like teepees. You have to crawl inside, and the waiters and waitresses wear beads and feathers. It's very uncomfortable. For shoppers, they do have hundreds and hundreds of stores, but all the stores sell turquoise necklaces. The soundtrack in the background of every dinner, every lunch, every hotel, every lobby, every shopping mall is that incredibly irritating, breathy, echoey Indian flute music. I pleaded with the assistant manager of our of our hotel, that even the original Native Americans were stoned out of their minds on peyote when they listened to this crap, but no avail. And just as the Indian language was almost impenetrable, except to the wind talkers, it is almost impossible to read a menu in Santa Fe because of all of the adjectives. Now, I, I brought back an example from a menu. Now, this place was a breakfast place. It was near my hotel went kind of like this. For breakfast, Geronimo style enlarged yolk organic brown Copper Creek hen eggs with pinion pine chayapote, smoked triage of peppers and fingerling range wood seared potatoes with squaw greens. Don't ask me. And at $2 an adjective, it's pricey. Be warned that Santa Fe has the strictest drunk driving laws in the country and they need them. At several of the restaurants I went to, they did not put tequila in the margaritas because, as the owner explained to me, hey, people would just drink them. I asked at the hotel bar if I could have a glass of wine at 9.30 Friday night. They told me no because the bartender had a party he had to go to. And this was not an aberration. I went to several bars that closed early on the weekends because, as my waitress speculated, most people around here prefer to drink in the privacy of their cars. Finally, I have to spend one moment here on the spa scene. It deserves some mention because it is huge business in Santa Fe. People come from all over the world for the health treatments, obviously not taking into the account that the oxygen deprivation during your stay is probably going to cut your life short by half a year. Now, the fanciest of all these spas is a place called 10,000 Waves. 
They specialize in expensive massages where they put hot rocks on your back and rub you down with sea salt. They give you bathrobes and invite you to enjoy the clothing-optional co-ed hot tubs where you get to hang out with naked Japanese men. And when you arrive, they give you a menu of facials. I have one of these menus. And one of my favorites was the $125 half-hour facial massage utilizing extra virgin olive oil, avocado, and pureed tomatoes. And then I realized I gave myself one of these every time I ate a submarine sandwich. The most talked-about massage in Santa Fe was the $200 half-hour facial whose active ingredient was organic nightingale poop. For real. One of our makeup ladies got this facial, and she reported that it was very nice, not at all what she expected. And I'm going, what? What did she expect? I mean, she expected dung to be rubbed into her face. She's the one who requested it and paid for it. And at this moment, this very sweet woman seemed to embody the mental pathology that was so disturbing that I can only describe it as very Santa Fe. And just the thing you would expect in the land of enchantment. Oh, and, and just on a personal note, my personal preference, if you are going to pay someone to rub bird poop into your face, go ahead and spend the extra money for the organic poop. It's not the time to economize. Now, the first scene I actually shot in the movie The Wild Hogs, I was sitting on a wooden fence of a corral for three days, and I was doing what they call background work. That's a show business term for being an extra, which means you don't really say anything. Your purpose is to fill the frame. Now, to be honest, since I could see from my lofty perch atop this corral fence, the camera was really over 200 yards away and pointed in the other direction. I was guessing I was not even background. I was what is referred to as deep background, which is a show business term meaning that the frame would probably be filled without me, but I could still wear my costume to work and eat muffins off the craft service truck. For those of you who don't know movies, I'll clarify with another example. In the movie Godzilla, if you were the Japanese army, you were background. If you were running from Godzilla, you were deep background. And to tell you the truth, I actually don't really mind being background or deep background, especially in the first few days of shooting. It lets you get to know the crew and the cater without any pressure. Now, in this movie, I was playing the role of Sheriff Charlie. Now, as an actor, you always hope you have a character with the last name. Because there's an unintentional hierarchy in the way the parts are written for actors. At the top of this hierarchy are the parts like Harrison Ford gets, like Richard Kimball, Han Solo. These characters have a first and a last name, which means the writers have thought about these characters a lot. Consequently, during a movie, Harrison Ford characters can be shown doing almost anything. 
eating, sleeping, reading the paper, drink coffee, shower, get dressed, drive to work, shave, run for his life, shoot guns, deliver stirring oratory to alien warlords. Now, the next level of characters down you'll find in a script is where you are called by one name and your job description. And I've noticed something very interesting, that in comedies, you're usually named for your job description and your first name. Like here I was, Sheriff Charlie. In my career, uh, I have also played Ranger Bob, Ringmaster Bob, Dr. Ted, Dr. Bob, Father John, Father Joe. Actually, the two fathers were the same part in two different versions of the same movie, Trevor. Um, There was one TV movie I did, Last Flight Out. It was kind of different. I was Tim for the first half of the script and Jim for the last part of the script. I think it was some kind of word processor error. But Richard Crenna, who, oh, dear man, was the funniest man who ever lived, would always call me Tim Jim with a straight face during all of our scenes and in serious discussions with the director. But nobody noticed. <laughs> but that's another story. Uh, in a drama... The difference is your name will usually be a job description and your last name, like Agent McLaren, Dr. Andros, Detective Keith. Now, I'm not saying this is a hard and fast rule in movies, but it happens a lot. Usually, if the writers have not imagined you with two names, they've also not imagined you with a car, with a girl, or with a life. They probably just imagined you as the bearer of some form of narration needed to get somebody else with two names from point A to point B. Now, I hate to talk about it, but there is a level of characters beneath the people with one name. These are characters with no name at all, and I've played these too. Sometimes these names are just a job description. In my life, I have played TV clerk, professor, doctor, hotel clerk. In fact, I was almost fired from hotel clerk. The only thing worse than playing characters with no names and just the job description is the character with no name and the job description and a number. Like in the movie The Love Bug, I read for and did not get the role of cop number two. But I have played homeless person number two, teacher number three, government man number two. These roles are so low on the totem pole that you're sometimes mistaken for the cleaning staff and chased off of the set. As I was saying in the scene, I'm sitting on top of a six-foot-tall fence, circular corral, watching our leading characters, played beautifully by Tim Allen, John Travolta, Martin Lawrence, slap a live bull on the ass and run out of the bull ring before they get killed. Now, a crucial element in making a scene like this safely is the scientific principle that to the human eye, all bulls look alike and can be substituted at will. In this movie, we had four bulls. Bull number one was Zorro. Zorro was a huge old bull, and he was very docile. You could hit Zorro in the head with a shovel, and he wouldn't move. This was the bull that was put in the ring with the real actors when the real actors had to be in the same shot with him. And I was, I was shocked near the end of the day when one of the bull wranglers told Walt Becker, our director, that they would have to switch bulls because Zorro was getting tired. 
I'm thinking tired. All Zorro did was stand there and chew, which is what he would probably do off the set. So I was curious as to what the warning signs were that Zorro was nearing exhaustion. And it's interesting because as it turns out, it was a matter of science. Because Zorro was black, as are all of these bulls, he was absorbing heat at a very high rate. And it was 104 degrees that day. The wrangler noticed that Zorro was sticking out his tongue further than usual when he licked his own face. And that was a sign of dehydration. So it was advised he'd be removed from the ring. And I had to agree with the wrangler. I was sitting on the fence in the sun. I was only wearing brown, but let me tell you, I was absorbing a lot of heat, but I never thought to lick my face. So Zorro was replaced by Buddy. Buddy was bull number two, and he was termed as, quote, slightly more aggressive than Zorro. He would whirl his head around at approaching actors. So for safety, one of his front feet had to be tied with the length of chain and then nailed to the ground with a huge spike. But we got some usable shots of Buddy until he got all tangled up in his chain and started to trip over his own front feet. At that point, our lead actors were sent back to their huge air-conditioned trailers, and we started shooting with stunt doubles and bull number three and bull number four. Bull number three had no other name than bull number three, and he was described as the aggressive but smart bull. That meant he would kick and snort and bellow and then mount a single charge before looking for a way out of the ring. And I'm not sure what part of that was the smart part. I should mention that all of the bulls, smarter otherwise, were given commands with a single word, bull. This was yelled at the top of the bull wrangler's lungs, and it meant a variety of things from go, stop, don't, do, now, and look out, everybody, the bull is loose. <laughs> bull three was very, very good of getting actual footage of a bull charge, but he was a smart bull, and he wisely steered clear of humans, so he was no good for shots of the bull nearly goring our leading actors, or in this case, stuntmen. For that, we needed bull number four. Bull number four was the highly aggressive bull. We're talking about a full-sized, fire-breathing, murderous, man-eating bull. He bellowed, he roared, and there was nothing in his eyes but mayhem. This was the scene. The scene was we were going to release bull number four into the ring with three bull stuntmen and me. There were seven cameras running to make sure we got some usable action bull footage. And I was concerned that I was the only person there without a stunt double. But then again, I was Sheriff Charlie. One of the downsides of not having two names is that they usually don't get you a stunt double. John, the first AD, that means assistant director, came up to me when I was on the fence and he said to me, Stephen, I'm not going to tell you anything that isn't just plain old common sense. When we release that bull, he's going to see you up on this fence. I figure you got about six or seven seconds, jump off the fence Get clear before he reaches you. Anything on the inside of the ring will be crushed. Fingers, feet, legs, anything. I looked across the ring at Bull 4, who was already looking at me and snorting. 
and I performed a mental calculus like a professional golfer on the green of the U.S. Open with a 30-foot putt. I calculated the size of Bull 4. I adjusted for his stride when angry. I plotted it against the diameter, the slope of the bull ring. I looked at John the AD and said, uh-uh, more like five seconds, five seconds before he reaches me. John looked back at the ring, and he agreed. Yeah, more like five. Anyway, I just want you to realize, Stephen, it won't be instantaneous. You do have time. Be careful. Don't rush. Don't fall into the ring. Five seconds is plenty of time to get clear. So they started all seven cameras, yelled action, and released bull four. I heard the roar. I felt the vibrations through the ground. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see a cloud of dust. I saw him heading straight for me. Swung my legs up over the fence, three seconds. Landed on the slight downslope, fell away from the fence, four seconds. Bull four recognized no barriers like fences, and at five seconds, he slammed right into the corral where I had been sitting. The force of the impact shattered the four-by-four timbers that were being used as a support, and the power of Bull four's impact pushed the entire corral afoot towards me. And he eyed me angrily through the slats of the splintered wood, and he wasn't even thinking like, I'll get you or just you wait. But it was more vacant, like, ooh, fence hard. You deep background. During the shooting, one of the stunt men was gored, and he was flung out of the ring. And the other two barely escaped the same fate. And I witnessed something there, David, that I've never seen during the shooting of any film. The head stunt coordinator came up to the director and said, hey, you know, there's time for another run with the bull. We have enough daylight. The bull is still fresh, and the injured stuntman wanted to give it another try. And I'm telling you, the injured stuntman had a broken leg. Well, Walt Becker considered this for a moment, and he said, you know, I don't think so. The guy can hardly walk. The other two stuntmen barely got out of the ring. I don't know. I got a bad feeling about this. Gentlemen, I say we call it a day. And right here and now, I want to tip my hat to Mr. Walt Becker. First time I've ever seen a director erring on the side of safety. And I knew at that moment the film was going to be a success because we had the angels on our side. Now, the next morning, I was on my way to the set early. We were in some sort of Ford Explorer. And all I could see up ahead of us was a swirling cloud of dust by the corral. And then suddenly, out of the dust, there's sheer pandemonium. I mean, the extras are running all over the place. I heard screams. And then in the dust, I see three galloping cowboys going in all sorts of different directions at once. The crowd of 50 or so people start running directly for our car. And then I see it. One of the bulls is loose, and he's running through all this terrified mass of people and the tables and the camera equipment, and there are three wranglers with lassos on horseback in pursuit. We stopped. The bull was charging directly toward our car, and you could see the bull realize it was totally free, and that idea gave him renewed and desperate energy, and it was that look of recognition that made me think this was the smart bull. Bull number three. 
one of the riders at full gallop lassoed the horns and pulled hard, and the bull stopped, turned, and gored the horse in the side. The horse reared. There was blood streaming out of its side. But with fury, that horse continued after the bull. The other cowboys got their ropes around the bull's horns, and then they started backing their horses up until the ropes were pulling taut in three different directions, and the bull stopped. The bull wrangler rushed in and led the bull back to its cage. There was a moment when everything was still. And then in a moment, everything went back to normal. And then a moment later, hey, we got ready for the next shot. I had some time, and I had to find out if the horse survived. And I found the cowboy over by some rocks, and I asked him, how's the horse? He turned around, pulled his hat off, and a cascade of blonde hair fell down like in the movies. He was a she. She was the cowboy and the bull roper. She smiled and said, not to worry. The horse was fine. She cleaned up the wound. She was giving him the day off, but she would be riding him tomorrow. I was relieved. And I asked her, how on earth did she ever get in this line of work? And she said, oh, I always loved to ride. My granddad taught me years and years ago when I was a little girl, been riding my whole life. And I asked, well, was your granddad a cowboy too? And she laughed. And she said, oh, no, no. He was an actor. His name was Fess Parker. He played Davy Crockett. Maybe you could have seen him when you were a kid. And I said, yeah, I did. In fact, I still have a picture of me in the hat. And she laughed. I told her I would come by and see her later. And I headed back to my trailer ready for another day of deep background feeling that the world was a little safer. Davy Crockett rides again. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you till we meet again. That was Land of Enchantment, a series of stories told by Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen. Excellent yes. job as always, and of course, nice callback to episode two, <laughs> uh, featuring the stories of uh, Davy Crockett and, and heroes. Uh, well, really, it, really it wouldn't have that. been a callback except it was true. And uh, you know, interestingly enough, uh, Stephen, your story—not uh, the first time a story about wild hogs has begun uh, with fear of uh, brain bleeding. So, I just want to <laughs> want to throw that out there as well. Heyo. But no, I, hey, I no, kid. no, no. I got I got to tell you something. You know, there there was something a little miraculous about that movie, and th this is a unique thing again that I've been involved with in my career, is when they had Tim Allen, John Travolta, Martin Lawrence, Bill Macy. You know, they're this fantastic cast. Everybody signed on to the movie right away, before they had a finished script, and Disney was so excited about the movie that they green-lighted this thing right away before it was ready to go. And, you know, for me, watching, 
I really have to say Tim Allen was stunning because Tim Allen used so much improvisation, uh, not only funny stuff, but, you know, some of the heartfelt stuff too, to stitch the whole movie together. Under normal circumstances, they would have waited. They would have waited till they had all their ducks in a row. But because the four guys were ready to go, they had to start shooting before they really were ready. And I, if if you didn't have those four guys who were so good at improvisation, you, you couldn't have done the movie at all. <laughs> don't make another crack. <laughs> don't worry. I, I, you know, I won't. They I mean, shouldn't have done the movie because that movie made a lot of people happy. Exactly. I mean, fourteen uh, percent on Rotten Tomatoes, but it did make a hundred sixty million dollars. So, yeah, that's uh, right. That's right. Ended up being and, a good bet. Yeah, and and you know, a lot of times, uh, you'll, you a lot of those movies that do make, you know, uh, over a hundred million dollars, don't rate that high in Rotten Tomatoes. I've noticed. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, well, let's wrap things up for this episode. But before we do that, I just want to point out that uh, we are going to start uh, giving the Tobolowski Files its own brand new feed. And if you want want to access that feed, just head on over to TobolowskiFiles.com. There should be links on the side. Uh, but you can see in the post, there's links to subscribe to the Tobolowski Files in iTunes or in whatever RSS reader that you use. Uh, and, it's, and, it's, I'm sorry, and, go ahead. And David, uh, I just should mention... It, it's dreary, but I should spell my name. Okay, go ahead. Because I got two emails this week of people saying how grateful they were that I spelled my name accurately. You know, it helped them, and that is T as in Tom, O, B as in boy, O, L-O-W-S-K-Y, not I, Y, the Russian spelling. Gotcha, yeah. A lot of people put in the I by accident, uh, including our editor-in-chief, actually. Um, but uh, yeah, it's at Tobolowski Files with a Y, Dot com and uh, we are going to be splitting it off from the slash filmcast. Uh, so uh, episodes three, this episode, and episode four, I think we're going to try to keep in the slash filmcast so you can make a smooth transition. But I, I hope that starting with episode five, we'll be able to uh, to split off into our own feed. So be sure to go to tobolowskifiles.com and resubscribe to the Tobolowski Files in its own feed in iTunes or via RSS. So uh, yeah, that's going to do it for this episode of the Tobolowski Files. Uh, Stephen. How can yes, people sir. reach you, sir? Uh, I think people can reach me at stephentobolowski at gmail.com. And, and that's with a P-H, S-T-E-P-H-E-N. And if people want to find more of these awesome stories, where can they do that? I think uh, the bet now none of these stories are on the movie, but if you like the stories, go to uh, Stephen Tobolowski's birthday party. It's a movie Robert Brinkman shot with me telling not these stories but other stories about movies and life and love, like when I was, you know, held hostage at gunpoint and kidnapped by monks in Thailand. But uh, we did this movie uh, about three, four years ago, and it's been all over the world now at film festivals. But it's at Amazon. Dot com. It's at stbpmovie.com. That's Stephen Tobolowsky birthday party, stbpmovie.com. And, of course, you could rent it from Netflix. Yeah, and definitely you know, check it out. It is very much the inspiration for this podcast. So uh, <gasps> be sure you take a look. You can Thank find you. me at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y. You can also find the other show I host, The Slash Filmcast, at slashfilmcast.com. And you can email me at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. So that brings us to the end of this episode of the Tobolowski Files. See you guys later. Bye-bye. So literally, we're going to slap a bull.
Yep, right on the ass. And then you're gonna wanna hightail it out of there. Why? Because he can kill you. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Hey, man, I thought this was a drinking game. Yeah, you know, you had a lot of animals I would slap, but I, you know, chicken. I'd slap a chicken or a goat, maybe. A ferret I'd slap, you know? But I'm not, I'm, I'm not gonna slap a bull. Oh, come on, Doug. It's your idea, get in there. I didn't know we had to slap something. Look at the nuts on that thing. Come on. It's not safe, Woody. Oh, it's not safe. You know what? You snooze, you lose. I'm going. You getting ready to do that? Yep. Oh! Oh, oh. Jackass. Go ahead, Woody. Hope you're wearing a cup. <laughs> right on the head. He looks confident. Easy. That's really an, um, Doug, go. Come on, man. Handle your business. It's easy. I'm not gonna... Yeah, come on, it's fun. <laughs> old days, Doug, old days. All right, all right, all right, I'm gonna slap a ball. I'm gonna, I'm gonna slap that ball. That's my dad. There he goes. Just slap it right there in the rear end, huh? Right on the hind haunches. <sighs> you know, this is so good for Doug. Actually, it's good for all of us. Yeah. Hey, Charlie, thanks for bringing us here, man. Sure. Glad we could help. Yeah, and we never seen it done twice in a row. Mm -hmm. What? It, it, it'll be interesting to see how the bull takes being slapped mm -hmm. now that he's alert. Mm -hmm. Alert?